welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. From the latest archery equipment and expert shooting advice to proven bowhunting tactics and the sport's biggest personalities, we've got you covered. Now, here's your host, Editor Christian Bird. All right, welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. Uh, we are the voice of bowhunting, and I want to wish everybody uh, out there who's listening a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and uh, just the very best of a joyful holiday season. It's uh, December the 26th, so all the presents uh, in the Berg household have been unwrapped, and the mess has been cleaned up, and I've got uh, as my guest today uh, the editor of Bowhunter Magazine, Mr. Kurt Wells. Kurt, welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. Yeah, thanks. And I want to echo your Christmas greetings to everybody. I hope everybody was happy and healthy during the holidays. Absolutely. And uh sounds like you had a pretty good day and um, you probably spoiled the grandkids a little bit and, and that's good. Yeah, all the grandkids were here. Everybody's doing well and it's all pretty rosy right now around the Wells family. Well, that's awesome, man. You know, I don't know if uh, people, you know, realize it, but uh, you and I, even though we probably don't actually talk uh, more than uh, eight times a year, and we probably see each other two or three times a year tops, but we, we're colleagues because uh, Bowhunter and Peterson's Bowhunting are both part of uh, Outdoor Sportsman Group. So, in one sense, we work together, but in another sense, we, we really don't because, um, you know, and very consciously, you know, we, we work very independently and you guys do your thing at Bowhunter Magazine and, and you have kind of your focus and we do our thing over here at Peterson's Bowhunting. And uh, uh, I enjoy actually uh, Bowhunter, you know, as a reader, because I don't know what you guys are doing day to day. And when those new magazines come out, it's kind of fun to sit down and look at the stories and, and see what you guys are up to. And uh, you've been doing a great job with the magazine. So I want to commend you and the rest of the staff over there for uh, keeping me entertained and educated uh, every month with Bowhunter. I appreciate it. Well, uh, you know, same goes for you. You know, we're, it's like television, so everybody has their niche, and uh, we have our sort of DIY adventure uh, storytelling sort of a niche, and you guys are, are more focused on gear and equipment and how-to and that kind of stuff, and, and that's the way we like it is to keep a, a, a definitive line between the two, but uh, uh, yeah, we definitely work for the same company, and uh, uh, we sort of provide that variety in bow hunting, and there's getting to be fewer and fewer bow hunting magazines around, so... Uh, but we're still strong and doing well. Yeah, we're still, we're st- our hearts are still beating, man, and that's good. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I often tell people, because uh, sometimes people ask me, what's the difference? And I'm sure you get the same question, too. And uh, I-, I often compare it to, like, the political spectrum. And I say, you know, if you draw a line or an arrow that's going horizontally, right? So you've got a, everything out to the left and everything out to the right. And if you go all the way over to the left and on the left-hand edge, is traditional bow hunting, you know, with long bows and recurves. And you go everything from traditional bow hunting right up to the center of the line, which is modern compounds. 
and you know everything that has to do with that pretty much that's Bowhunter magazine and then if you go from that same place in the very center with like modern compounds and then you go off to the right and you get into all the latest high tech stuff the latest gear innovations a lot of uh, you know more practical strategy oriented stuff and then up to and including you know crossbows and all the latest stuff that's almost a little tactical on the cross bow end that's kind of peterson's bow hunting so wherever you fall in that spectrum of bow hunting and archery gear if you gravitate a little bit more towards the traditional end of things you probably are a, more of a bow hunter fan and if you graduate gravitate a little bit more towards the the technical stuff and maybe you're a crossbow person you you probably gravitate more towards peterson's bow hunting so i don't know if you agree with that but that's how i try to explain it to people anyway yeah, that's, that's pretty close. And of course, the the solution for most people is just to subscribe to both magazines. Oh man, you you <laughs> ought to go into marketing. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what it for if you go on our websites, you know, uh, bowhunter dot com or bowhuntingmag dot com, you can get a year of the magazines, each one for ten bucks, and. It's it's ridiculous, you know, of a value in my opinion. Of course, we're biased, but I don't know where else for, you know, for a ten dollar bill can you get the amount of information, advice. I mean, just the people that we have on our staffs, Kurt. I mean, I know I feel extremely fortunate to have, you know, guys like Randy Ulmer and Bill Winky and Eddie Claypool working for Peterson's Bow Hunting, and of course you have Randy uh, does quite a bit with you guys on Bow Hunter, and you've got some other awesome folks. It's if there's not something that you can pick up and you know really learn for your own hunting, for your own shooting in every issue, then you're just not reading that closely. Yeah, and it's you know a dollar and fifteen cents per issue if you if you have a subscription. And if people understood the work that goes into creating these magazines. Uh, you know, they would see how good of a deal that is. And even if you only see a couple, three things in the magazine that appeal to you, uh, you certainly get your money's worth at that kind of cost. So I just can't believe people uh, uh, can find a reason not to subscribe at that kind of cost. Yeah, for sure. And uh, that, folks, wraps up the shameless self-promotion segment of today's episode. (laughs) Next, Kurt and Christian talk bow hunting. And uh, we're going to talk about some of our adventures from this past year in sort of in uh, the context of of Bowhunter TV. Because, um, you know, Bowhunter TV has been around for going on 15 years now. I understand that you guys are, are currently doing, you know, field production for season 15 I guess season 14 is currently airing and you know much to much to Kurt's chagrin uh, the company has in its infinite wisdom seen fit to even allow yours truly to start doing some uh, guest appearances on Bowhunter TV so I don't know if you love it that much Kurt but I like it because it gives me some more opportunities to get out in the field and I uh, I killed a, a whopper whitetail here this past fall that'll be on the show uh, here in 2018 and I know you've had a ton of adventures um, 
So congratulations to you guys on, on making it 15 years, which is no small feat in today's television industry. And why don't you tell me a little bit about what's been going on with Bowhunter TV and some of the adventures you had this past year? Because it sounds like you had quite a bit of excitement, especially uh, early last fall. Yeah, yeah, you know, every year is different. Uh, some years you just really do well, and and we'll get, uh, like last year, I think I was responsible for eight shows out of the 20, and and then other years it doesn't go as good, and so it's it's just like anybody else's bow hunting adventures. You have good years, and you have bad years, and the luck sort of evens out. But I started off uh, in the Northwest Territories on a mountain caribou hunt, and uh, very high altitude. We're at, I called it sheep hunting for caribou, and uh, I took a pretty good bull up there, and then uh, I went on a brown bear what's, hunt. What's, pr- what's pretty good? Oh, I think he was right around 340, something like that. Yeah. We didn't see a lot of the big monsters that are, are typical for that area. But uh, uh, we got him on the second to the last day, so we were happy to get him. Was it a hard hunt? Did you have to really cover a lot of miles to get that animal? Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty rough. We had a couple of 12-mile days at, uh, at, uh, that were uh, pretty much beat you down because it's so steep up there and they're really scattered around the area and, and there was guys hunting dull sheep right in the same terrain so it was a pretty taxing hunt when it comes to physical ability in that but I've always been a pretty good hiker and a pretty good walker when it comes to that kind of thing so I don't have a problem with it that's because you're so dang tall. You're a long strider, and you drive short guys like me crazy because I have to take two steps for every one that you take. Yeah, yeah I guess that probably helps in some situations. It's just a little tougher to get in a float plane. Yeah, well, we all got our crosses to bear. So you, so you got a, a good mountain caribou, and that would be what September, early September, or what? No, that was actually July. Oh, July! I'm sorry, you probably said that. I didn't yeah. realize you started hunting those things so early. Yeah, they're in full velvet, and uh, we hunted them in July, and uh, and then in August I went to Alaska to hunt brown bear. And uh, those are real low percentage bow hunts. And um, what was your method up there? Was it spot and stock? Yeah, pretty much. But it was mostly just spot for 10 days because uh, as soon as I landed the plane, uh, the guide told me that they had a huge berry crop, and I knew we were in trouble because the bears, if they're on the water, on the salmon streams, then they're distracted and splashing and running around after salmon and so you can get in there slide in there and sneak up on them but uh when they're on the berries they're all over spread all over the mountainsides and uh there were so many berries cranberries crowberries and blueberries i mean you could just sit down on one spot and just eat until you were ready to throw up but so the, the bears don't have to move they just get up on a mountainside and sit there and so in 10 days i i saw five boars and only two were shooters and they were all three to three and a half miles out and in that tundra with the beaver dams and creeks and everything you can only average about one mile an hour but the biggest problem the guides are so leery about is 
when you hunt brown bears, if you walk out to a certain place to let's say glass from a different hill for the next four or five, six days, if a brown bear crosses where you walk day or night, he will turn around and run as far as he can go and be completely in a different valley altogether. So if you start walking over one way and then you go this way and that way and you put out a spider web of scent, you'll blow every bear right out of the valley. So you just have to sit in one spot and hope that a bear is moving in your direction and then get in front of them. And that just never happened. Mm. So how long were you up there? Ten, ten full days. Ten full Sitting day. in one spot, glassing from dark to dark. Okay. Brutal. And you never even had a single stalk? Nope. Wow. No. Nope. Saw, saw one huge boar on the first day, and he was going the other direction. And then we saw a really awesome bear up on a mountainside that was very dark brown with blonde ears. And we watched him for two different days, but... Uh, it was just never any place where we could get to him. So it was pretty frustrating to not even get one moment where you're uh, ready to have a heart attack because you're sneaking up on a brown bear on purpose. So, you know, do you get a show out of that sort of thing? I mean, people will think that, you know, you guys probably everywhere you go, you got a couple animals tied up for you, right? <laughs> no, it's uh, actually more difficult to hunt for t- TV because, you know, you got a cameraman behind you and uh, doubles the noise, doubles the scent, and doubles the visual. And certain hunts like uh, stalking for uh, mule deer are one of the most difficult hunts to videotape. And because you got that cameraman back there and you can't just belly crawl by yourself and there's always concern about whether he's on camera or not. and. That makes it uh, quite a bit more of a challenge to uh, to hunt with a cameraman behind you. So, ten ten days of sitting on a hill looking for bears. Do you, I mean, does that make uh, an exciting episode, or is that just a basically a waste of your time and money? I mean, I don't want to say a waste; like there was no value in it. But do you, is it basically a time that you you didn't really get a show, or do you get a show out of that? Well, we had uh, several sows and cubs that would uh, uh, happen to walk our way. I mean, we saw tons of sows and cubs every day, Uh, many, many bears. I mean, the population is just incredible up there in that particular valley. And so we've got some videotape of sows and cubs coming by and getting fairly close and swimming out in the water, chasing salmon. So, you know, you might get a half an episode out of that, uh, combine it with something else. But, uh, you know, we'll get some use out of it. Maybe someday we'll uh, take another shot at it. But uh, it's really low percentage. You know, Dwight Shue's been on eight brown bear hunts and hasn't killed one. So it's really tough. Interesting. So, so that was the second trip you did this year. Yep. And then uh, the next month in September, then I hunted uh, elk in New Mexico with uh, New Mexico Hunting Adventures, Vince Eagle, and had a great hunt down there. Um, saw quite a few elk and ended up killing a six by six uh, on camera, and that that's going to make a great episode there. 
Congratulations, man. That's great. So, yeah, thanks. So, did you, and then did you do any other uh, game before you moved into deer season then? No, no. I, uh, building a lake house, I had a lake cabin in Minnesota and we're, we tore that down and we're building a year round home. So, I, I kind of stayed home for October. And uh, and then November the whitetail season started, and that was I started off there in Iowa, doing Iowa tag, and that was brutal too. I mean, uh, you know, there it takes four years to draw the tag, and you don't want to burn your tag on a 130 inch buck, and so you know, the big and small is all relative, depending on where you're at. And so I passed up a lot of bucks. And it was a kind of a strange rut down there. We were seeing a lot of the immature bucks, but uh, the mature bucks just weren't showing up in daylight. And we heard that from a lot of people around Iowa. But uh, this was early November. The story was. Yeah, about starting on the first through the tenth. Yeah, you know, I interviewed I interviewed Bill Winky uh, for our uh, last episode, and we kind of did a recap of the rut. And you know, he's there in Iowa. You probably probably where mm-hmm. he hunted weren't too too far from Bill, and. Uh, he said it was kind of a weird rut too. Like lots of people out there were getting pictures of some really nice deer and they were all at night and they just weren't seeing as much daylight activity of these mature bucks as they normally do. So it sounds like you ran into kind of the same thing. Yeah, and it was really strange because we had perfect weather. I mean, you can't blame it on hot weather. Everything seemed to be uh, just right, darker the moon everything you want and uh you know i passed up a 135 inch buck a couple three times and uh, never saw anything bigger than that so i actually still have my iowa tag and that season is open until january 10th so i'm starting to get some evil thoughts in my mind of uh buzzing back down there for a few days first week in january if i could find a spot to go for late season now were you hunting with an outfitter out there or i was hunting on some leased ground that a guy uh, has he wasn't really an outfitter so it was mostly a diy type of a hunt but i don't know that it's the best kind of spot for late season so um you know, obviously now they're focused on food, and and I'm in. I was in Zone Five, so now I'm just looking for a late season spot to go down there and spend four or five days. Gotcha. Well, um, if you if you need a suggestion, you, you might look up uh, look up Steve Hansen from Straight Arrow Outfitters over in Albia. He's uh, he's right in the same neck of woods as Winky, and maybe he could uh, get you in there for four or five days. I don't know what he's got going on late season, but it's worth a check. Yeah, we'll keep that in mind. Um, so, so Iowa, yeah, and that's rare. You know, you don't hear too many people say they went to Iowa on a deer hunt and it was tough. You know, everyone thinks Iowa is somewhere where you're just going to go and there's going to be a giant buck behind every tree. But I guess. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's a huge misconception people have uh, with uh, people who hunt on television is that they think uh, everything is just a slam dunk. You're going to go in there and kill something. And, you know, we don't do it that way. I like to do it 
do it myself as much as I can. You know, you can't always do that, but I like it when an outfitter will just cut me loose and let, let me hang my own stands and do different things. It's mainly to get access to the property where there's uh, good mature bucks, but it's definitely not, uh, it's not a guarantee or slam dunk. Yeah, for sure. And then, so then after Iowa, you... I think he went somewhere else to hunt whitetails too, right? Because you were telling me there was some particular buck or whatever that you were really targeting. Yeah, I went straight from Iowa to Kansas, and I've been after this particular buck for four years. This is my fourth year. I've known about the buck for six years, and and uh, I've been hunting him before. And we call him Baby Booner because he's he's a uh, typical buck with long stiletto antlers and and he was seven and a half this year so i've been thinking you know he's probably gonna start going downhill but he didn't he actually grew a little bit more mass and uh i've gone down there years and never laid eyes on and i found him the very first day uh, this year and stayed with him for the next three days trying to get a stock when he had those locked down out in the prairie and he was just never in the right spot and uh, so I hunted uh, 10 days never got close to him and I passed up uh, one buck that was uh, 150 at least three times and you know you can't kill the big ones if you're always shooting the little ones or the medium sized ones so I kind of dedicated myself to that deer and you know on the specific buck like that is it changes everything in the way you hunt because all other deer become irrelevant and you don't want to shoot a doe you don't want to shoot a uh, you know you get a doe tag obviously but you don't want to mess anything up by shooting a doe you don't want to shoot a little buck or any of that kind of thing or even a good buck if you're after that one buck and to be honest i'm not sure that that's all that much fun uh to focus on one animal like that because you're you're just so intent on that animal that you don't care about anything else so if you see them in one spot you don't bother to hunt anywhere else and if you can't hunt there you don't hunt so it's just kind of uh it's just kind of tough and so I didn't see him anymore after that and I went home for Thanksgiving or I would have been in deep trouble <laughs> and uh, and then uh, the outfitter called me on a Sunday night and he let another bow hunter hunt in my tree stand my tree stand that I had put up and this buck walked out in front of him at 16 yards and I've been hunting this buck for four years and this buck came out at 16 yards and he missed him by three feet. Oh my goodness. And, and uh, the buck didn't know what happened, ran over a little ways and the guy missed him again at 30 yards. And so I took that as a sign from God. <laughs> if that guy's gonna miss that thing, it must be mean I, I should be the one to kill him. So the next morning I jump in a truck, I drive 10 hours back to Kansas and I hunted for 11 more days and never laid eyes on my deer. So I had 21 days invested in that buck and uh, part of the reason that I was so intent on it 
was that I think we're going to lose the access to that property over the course of this next year. So I may not be able to hunt him again. So I actually thought about booking a flight yesterday and going down for the last three, four days, but the wind was going to be bad for two of those four days. So I just, I guess I just rode it off. So, but that's pretty, that's pretty brutal. It's one thing to let a guy hunt in there, but the guy goes in there the first time and misses the buck twice that I haven't even got into bow range from, uh, you know, in, within bow range in four years. And, uh, that that's just you know life's just not fair <laughs> well it's it's not and i mean and bow hunting isn't fair you know if it was fair if it was fair you would have you know gotten that buck because i mean 21 <laughs> so you did 21 days in kansas after that buck and you you got nothing and then 10 mm. days in iowa and you got nothing and then 10 days up in alaska on that brown bear hunt and you got nothing so that's 41 days in the field with you know not nothing to show for it in terms of experience but no punch tags how do you keep your attitude positive when you're spending that many days you know plus more i'm sure over the course of the fall in the field and it's not going your way yeah, it can be tough. You know, people ask me all the time if hunting for television is, is if it's become a job. And, and no, it hasn't become a job. But when you've got 11 days in a row of uh, 4 a.m. alarms and going out in the cold, and, and a lot of times I'll sit dark to dark, and the cameraman just hate it, hate it when I do that. But on the second trip, I didn't even take a cameraman. I just videotaped it myself and uh self-filmed it but uh when you start doing that for you know 10 days or like even three weeks in a row with uh, a couple different states it starts to wear you down there's no doubt about that and uh uh people look at you when you're kind of weird when you get up to go out hunting and the wind's blowing and it's uh, 14 degrees and and that but you know, that's uh, sometimes usually you you get rewarded for perseverance and, and patience, and uh, but not always. Sometimes you pay the dues and you don't get the payoff. So that's bow hunting. It is. You've got to be. You got to be a little bit. I always say you got to kind of be a cockeyed optimist to be a bow hunter in the first place because. You know, th- there are times when it seems easy, and I'll tell you about my Kansas buck here in a minute. But uh, most of the time, you know, it's pretty hard. And sometimes when you run into a string of bad luck like you had this year, it starts to seem almost impossible. And I don't know what goes through your head, but I find that, you know, when I get into a real funk, like, you know, maybe in the middle of that, you know, 20 days in on a buck like that, and you, you just can't catch a break. And man, you just start to think to yourself, it's like a mirror 
miracle that any of us ever kill anything with our bow because it's like a million things have to go right for it to all happen. And it's amazing that, that we're successful as much as we are because it really is a challenge and it just it's, gets highlighted when you find yourself, you know, in some of the situations that you did where, you know, there's just nothing you can do. You feel helpless a lot of times as a bow hunter because you control, there's so many variables and you control only so many of them. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like it, uh, it's a burden or hell on earth uh, being out there doing it because I enjoy being in the field and watching deer and raccoons and bobcats and, you know, animals doing what they do. And it's not like I didn't have action. I mean, I passed up countless bucks mm-hmm. that uh, would come in uh, medium sized bucks, decent bucks small bucks, bucks that are like oh no don't come over here because I'm going to have to shoot you and uh, uh, so I had plenty of action, it was my choice to not take those animals and for a lot of bow hunters they would have took that animal and been perfectly happy and it would have been a justifiable uh, act. I mean, and only you can decide what is worthy of wearing your tag. But if you can look at a deer and say, no, nah, I'd be disappointed if I shoot that deer, then there's no sense shooting unless you're trying to fill, strictly trying to fill the freezer. Right. So, yeah, it's it's tough keeping keeping a positive attitude. But uh, when you know that the buck you're after is on that property and you could walk out at any minute, you just have to uh, uh, prop yourself up by believing that that's going to happen any minute. Mm -hmm. Now, do you ever feel any pressure because you're making a television show that you've got to shoot something just to, you know, provide some better material for for the camera? Uh, never, I've never let that, I shouldn't say never, but I don't let that bother me. I don't even think about the camera. I tell the cameraman, you know, if an animal comes in, if you see me pick up my bow, I'm going to shoot him. And, uh, uh, you just do what you do and I'll do what I do. And if I, if you don't want me to shoot, you're going to have to say something because I'm not paying any attention to anything but the shot angle and getting drawn, you know, the, the draw the timing of your draw is probably the most critical decision you make. And so I'm thinking about that all the time. But one time when I did feel a little bit of pressure was on a mountain goat hunt in uh, British Columbia, where me and the guide and the cameraman would be glassing and the guy, we'd finally find a a mountain goat that we could get to because 70% of them, you couldn't even get to them. And uh, the guide would say, well, we can be there in five and a half hours. So uh, we would take off hiking, and uh, it would take us five and a half hours just to get to where the goat was, all uphill hiking and some pretty treacherous terrain. And this whole time I'm thinking, man, I'm putting the guide through this much work. I'm putting the cameraman through this much work. I dang well better not miss. And as soon as you start thinking about missing, that's when you've already defeated yourself. So you have to stay away from that thought process. You know, if you're sitting in your tree stand or sitting in your ground blind, 
You have to always be using what I call positive imagery. And the only thing you think about is that arrow disappearing in the exact spot where you want it to go. You never contemplate a miss. You never think about it. You completely eliminate that thought process from your mind. Mm-hmm. Well, Easier said than done, obviously. Well, you know, we talked about this a little bit uh, on some of the other episodes that we did this fall where I talked about um, my Kentucky hunt that I had done uh, back in September when I was chasing uh, velvet whitetails there during the early season and I had a cameraman uh, with with that hunt which will be on uh, Bowhunter TV here probably sometime in uh, the second quarter in 2018 but I think you can only get there Kurt whether you're hunting for television or not it just takes a certain amount of experience to get to the point where you can have that you know sort of free mind without letting any of that pressure get to you you know you made a comment earlier and i really appreciated it because it's true and not enough people realize it you know even though you know whether you're the editor of a magazine and you you get some opportunities to do some neat things or you're the host of a, a television show as well as you are and you get some opportunities to maybe do even even more things that the average guy maybe doesn't get to do we're still bow hunters at heart you know we started bow hunting in the same way that everyone else did and and I know for myself and it's obvious that you feel the same way because you said it you know I still like to do as much on my own as I can within the you know logistical constraints of whatever hunt that I'm on and I know the outfitters that I enjoy hunting with uh, and that I like to go back to are the guys who are willing to let you as a you know whether you're a guest from the industry like you or just a regular client you know that let those clients and and guests um participate in the hunt you know whether that's throwing up another stand uh, because we need to move a little bit because of what we're seeing in the field uh, maybe scouting a new area if things are slow um, you know letting us make the call on you know when to maybe get a little more aggressive on a stock because that's when you really feel like a bow hunter you know when you're when you're letting your own predator instincts uh, kind of take over um, so it's good you you know that you're trying to put that to use as much as possible during the show yeah and it's always it gets to be a challenge sometimes i'll go on an elk hunt and i've been hunting elk for more years than the guide has been alive and uh and and so you always try not to guide the guide because he knows the terrain and he knows the animal in his area and stuff but you know when you get to the point where we are or I am for my level of experience you kind of become a type A and you want to do things at your pace and, and things that you the way you want to do them but it doesn't always uh, work when you do it that way so you have to kind of balance that a little bit yeah for sure you know and there's other times and I think it's important you know that I share this little story from Kentucky because there are times when the outfitter you know really does 
do a lot of legwork to set us up for success. And again, that's whether we're, you know, a guest or somebody who's there to film a television show or just any other client, you know, because really when it comes down to it, um, you know, what... You know, what is an outfitter selling and what are we as bow hunters paying for when we sign up for an outfitter hunt? It's for, like you said earlier, the access to some areas where there's probably a higher, you know, concentration of mature animals than we'd find on our own. And two, you know, that knowledge, that advanced knowledge of, you know, to be able to go into an area and not have to spend the first five week, five days or week you know, just figuring out where the animals are and getting stand set because all that intelligence has been gathered, you know, on our behalf by the outfitter over the course of the, you know, the summer. And, um, you know, the buck that I killed in Kentucky is a really good example of that. I went down and hunted at Whitetail Heaven um, down south of Lexington. I had been there two years prior, and although I didn't get a deer on that trip, uh, I saw... Uh, a, a really nice buck the first night of the hunt and I wasn't able to get a shot but I saw you know really uh, about 15 or so really nice velvet bucks that were taken by other hunters in camp when I was there so that would have been 2015 and so I knew that I wanted to come back because it was such a, a high quality hunt a really good operation and uh, my schedule just didn't let me get back there in 2016 and so I made it back this past fall and and, and you guys were nice enough to, you know, send a cameraman along. And when I got down to camp, uh, the outfitter, Tevis McCauley, you know, told me, you know, there's a really big buck, you know, that we know is living, you know, in this particular area, not too far from the lodge. And uh, one of his guides uh, set a stand up for myself and the cameraman. And I even had mentioned to him, you know, if you're going to set a stand for me, just remember that I'm a lefty. So keep that in mind. And they had this you know, set in a little clover plot and it was set up just perfect for a lefty. And I was really lucky because I didn't see the buck. They had a bunch of trail camera pictures of this deer and we didn't see him on the first night, but on the second night, the deer came in and, you know, I, as I told the outfitter, I told the guide and I told Tevis, I was like, you know, I really feel like, you know, the deer is almost as much yours as it is mine because you did all the scouting and you hung that stand and all I really did was, you know, the cameraman and I, I guess we were able to sit the stand for two nights and we didn't screw anything up. And when the deer came in, I was uncharacteristically patient in allowing him to make his way out into the plot and really look around for several minutes before he relaxed. And then I felt comfortable drawing my bow and, and making the shot. And I did make a good shot. But, uh, you know, that deer, beautiful velvet buck scored uh, green score scored like 181 and change so the biggest deer that i've ever killed in my life and you know as people who get the opportunity to hunt on tv you know sometimes we do get opportunities like that um and you know there are other people that did a lot of the legwork for us and and i'm not ashamed to admit that um i mean the only thing i 
could have done otherwise is screw it up and that would have done anybody any good anyway um so and there's a little bit of pressure too that comes along with that kurt because when you're in that kind of a situation and you're up in that tree stand you're like okay you know i've got this golden opportunity if this deer shows up but i also know like the outfitter he probably would really like me to kill this deer because it'll be you know a good show and good exposure for him and of course uh, the company wants me to do that if we get an opportunity because they've got the salary of the cameraman and all the equipment and the travel time invested in that um, so there's a lot of expectation on you and not that I'm complaining but like you said you have to be able to put all of that out of your head when the deer shows up and you just do your thing like you were hunting in your backyard and it was a doe you know because it, it isn't any different at the end of the day and if you don't if you can't do that you know you're probably not going to be successful but yet I can look back at my younger years as a bow hunter and say there was probably a time not so many years ago where it would have been a real struggle for me to do that yeah I mean you can't apologize for that I mean that when you book a hunt that's that's what you're getting I mean that's why people book a hunt and uh, you know you'll, you'll see message boards on the internet with these internet experts that think they know what TV is all about and you know, if somebody calls me a TV hunter uh, I, I take that almost as an insult because I was bow hunting long before outdoor television came along and uh, but logistics dictate that I can't go down or like you can't go to Kentucky and do all that leg work yourself when you got a week to hunt and so you fly in there and you hunt for your six seven days you would have to go there for two weeks prior to get the same opportunity that that guide put you on, maybe more, and hang the stand. And that's if you could even get on the property in the first place. Mm-hmm. So when you when you book a hunt, you're booking it for that opportunity that that outfitter has done all that legwork and he's giving you that opportunity. That's what you're paying for. And uh, uh, you probably, I mean, you got the skills that you could have went out and done that if you had the time so uh, the same goes for a mule deer hunt where you come across a big mule deer buck uh, the guide might have thought of that mule deer buck a week ago and know he's in the area and uh, so I'll come in there do a stalk and if I kill that buck of course that's a team effort but oh, yeah. uh, that's nothing that's nothing to apologize for but no one still it, have to make the shot. Exactly. You know, that, like for example, the guy that sat in my tree stand in Kansas, he got the opportunity at this 185 inch clean whitetail, and he blew it right. and twice. So I'm not saying that. I never talk smack about missing because that the next time you shoot, then that's going to happen to you. So I never talk smack about that. But but so I'm not going to say that if I would have been in that tree, I'd have killed that deer. But uh, bow hunting always comes down to that one moment in time where you have to draw your bow, keep it together, and and make the shot, regardless of how you got there. 
you still have to make that shot. Oh, absolutely. You know, and that's what the guide and the outfitter said is, you know, you, you know, you still got to have a killer in the tree. And it, it really, I mean, forget about you and I. I know from being in plenty of outfitted camps over the years, you know, there are some there are some bad outfitters out there, but let's throw them out the window. The vast majority of outfitters, you know, that I've hunted with over the years are really hardworking, conscientious people. And they, you know, just as much as we have a passion for bow hunting, they have a passion for putting their clients, you know, in good opportunities. And I can tell you with no, you know, hesitation whatsoever, it truly wears and weighs on most of the outfitters I know when they when they put in all that work to create a good opportunity for, for somebody and then those opportunities are squandered, you know, over and over again. It's almost like they had missed themselves, you know, it's just it deflates them because uh so so actually, you know, you kinda learn over the years that the outfitters really appreciate the guys who have done their homework. They know their equipment. They've put in the practice time. They want those kind of clients because, you know, sometimes I think people get a, a, the wrong idea that the outfitters don't actually want anybody to kill deer because it's like people are using their inventory. But in my experience, it's the exact opposite. You know, the outfitters want you to be successful and they want you to capitalize on the opportunities because they know better than anybody that those opportunities are not easy to come by. And so every time you squander one, it becomes, you know, even harder to get another one. Yeah, my my two guides there in uh, New Mexico this year, Dominic Chavez and Vince Beagle, you know, they teamed up to call this bull in, and uh, I shoot this bull funnel shot at 19 yards, and it tips over pretty fast. And those two guys, on um, the level of excitement, you know, I was probably at an eight, and they were somewhere around a 12. <laughs> I mean, they, they were hugging each other. Uh, over over me getting that elk, they were so happy that they made it work, and uh, that's the kind of person you got to be to be a good guide. You have to revel in the success of your client, and uh, and it has to be just as exciting for you as it is for the guy that pulled the trigger. So uh, I really enjoy hunting with guys like that. Yeah. Now, what about for, you know, for all the viewers, uh, you know, I know what I do when I watch hunting television. I think the biggest value for me, because I mentioned earlier, you know, there's just no substitute for experience. And I know, man, the first couple times, because I, you know, being from Pennsylvania here and hunting, you know, almost all my hunting experience prior to getting this job uh, nine years ago was here in Pennsylvania. And so, you know, needless to say, I wasn't around a lot of really big trophy class animals before I got this job. And I can remember, man, the first few times that I even saw big bucks, never mind getting in bow range, just even seeing them, man, I'd get weak in the knees. And, and you know, it's probably a good thing they didn't come in because I, who knows if I would have even been able to get my bow drawn back, you know, and, and honestly, you know, I can say that over the course of, you know, nine years, it'll be 10 here in 20. 2018, you know, I've gotten, 
very fortunate to get more and more encounters, you know, with game and, and different kinds of animals. And, you know, I do a lot better job, you know, holding it together now than I did a decade ago. But again, it's all due to experience. I think one way, you know, that you can sort of simulate that, and I always do when I'm watching TV, is every time, you know, if I'm watching you on one of your hunts and there's an animal coming in, I try to put myself right in your shoes and think about everything that the animal is doing and everything that you're doing and how I would do it. And and I mean, it might sound silly, but I can actually, if I focus on it like that, I can get an adrenaline rush just watching you do it on TV. And I feel like that's a beneficial experience for me to have that simulated encounter. Yeah, like uh, I'm that way on elk hunts. You know, everybody, I'm like everybody else. If there's an elk hunt on TV, a bow hunt, I'll stop and watch it, stop what I'm doing and watch that. And uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the most critical decision you make as a bow hunter, no matter what species of game it is, is when you draw your bow the drawing motion of your bow and that is especially important with elk and i will be watching guys hunting elk on tv and i will be screaming at the tv draw your bow draw your bow you idiot draw your bow and and they wait until the elk is right there and you're not going to get away with one inch of draw stroke uh, when that elk is right there and so I, I get fired up about that too just watching like man that guy should have killed that bull all he had to do is draw when it was still down in the bottom of a little cut or whatever but uh, uh, you can definitely learn and that's the same as reading a magazine article or watching a television show or whatever if your mind is open to it you can learn stuff just by watching what happens. Even if there was a, a screw up, a guy, you can say, well, I would have made that shot or I could have done that or I'd have done that differently. So you don't just watch or you don't just read in a mindless fashion. You, you do it so that you analyze what's going on in the, in the article or what's going on on the television and what mistakes, what was learned, uh, what didn't work, what did work. You're always using an analytical mind and all that stuff to try to become the best bow hunter you can be. And, that, and that's what our job is, is to help people become the best bow hunter you can be, uh, whether it's mechanically or from a tactical standpoint or, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's, our, that's our goal. Oh, for sure. You know, and that's the thing is uh, that's what makes it kind of, you know, rewarding is that, you know, I know certainly for myself, again, I feel like I come from, you know, as humble a beginning in this sport as anybody that I know in the industry. And uh, I certainly don't feel like, you know, I'm above anybody, even though, yes, I probably am at the point now where I do have uh, more experience. Than, than most folks. I've got plenty of screw-ups and we could do a whole episode talking about all the golden opportunities I've screwed up and I'm sure you can do the same. I've never gotten the impression from you, you know, that you have any kind of airs of uh, greatness that you put on, Kurt. And, uh, you know, there may be some people in the industry, you know, that are in it for, you know, self-aggrandizement. But uh, honestly, most of the guys that I know, you know, we're all... 
uh, in the same boat and, and you learn, you know, probably more from your screw ups than you do from your successes. And so if we can do that, I know one of my favorite parts of being the editor is learning from guys like Randy Ulmer and, and Bill Winky and the, all the other folks that contribute, you know, getting to read and edit all the content that comes through the magazine, I feel has been a, tr- a true benefit to me, you know, as a bow hunter. And so, you know, the fact that we can help other people to learn those same things, you know, that's that's one of the best parts of the job. Yeah, you know, if, I, if I'm doing a TV hunt and I miss something, you know, the guy's like, oh, man, oh, man. Say, don't worry. That's, we love it. You know, I mean, I don't love to miss, but when we get a miss, we show it. And uh, and part of the reason is because I'm a bow hunter just like the guy down the street that, that uh, you know that bow hunts. I'm the same guy, and I can miss like anybody else or draw at the wrong time or whatever. And we'll air that on the show, and we've done it many, many times. And, and I find that viewers love that because they can identify with it. Uh, and another thing is they can look at that and say, oh, what an idiot. I'd have made that shot. <laughs> and uh, and then uh, they also know that if it's an outfitted hunt, that animal's still out there. So so uh, uh, I don't have any problem with that. Uh, so the furthest thing from my mind is worrying about my ego and, and that kind of thing. But uh, some, some guys are, and, and it tends to give a bad reputation to some on TV hunts, but uh, we're we're not that way. So, what uh, what's your New Year's resolution for 2018, Kurt? If you have one. Oh, oh man! Uh, I guess just to kind of stay in shape, stay healthy. You know, we all. We all think we're going to go, like I have nine points in Arizona with my two sons for elk, and I've been looking forward to drawing that tag for years, and we all might think we're going to uh, go on a hunt like that, or or you make your plans for the future, but uh, when you get to be my age, especially, I'm 63 now, and uh, you you just want to maintain your health. In your uh, mobility, and, and uh, you know, you never know when the doctor's going to close the door behind them and say, "Man, we got to have a talk." And so, there's you, you, no guarantee for tomorrow. And you might say, "Well, one of these days, I'm going to Greenland to hunt muskox, or I'm going to just go on an elk hunt one of these days." Well, one of these days may never come. So. You always are, are thinking about now, staying in shape now, keeping your weight down, and uh, maintaining your flexibility. And there's a lot of baby boomers that are, are just the same shape as me. And so I know guys that are out there hunting. Bob Delaney's 80, just turned 80 yesterday, and he's got a grizzly hunt for the spring. So uh, you can do it if you work at it, and that's what I'm trying to do is stay healthy. Well, that's good advice for everybody, man. I think the takeaway from everything Kurt just said is tomorrow is promised to no man, so book that outfitted hunt in 2018 and go get it done. (laughs) That's perfect, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I find that it's difficult for people, a lot of guys, it's hard for them to go out on that first hunt 
where they spend three, four thousand bucks. It's uh, it's uh, it's like a barrier, and uh, once they do it, on the way home from that hunt, they're asking themselves, "Where am I going next year?" Mm-hmm. So it's it's and then they go somewhere every year, and then it kind of balloons from there. And obviously, you have to have the resources. But you know, I just uh, all my writing income. Uh, years ago went into my hunting and I had a real job like everybody else and my writing income went to my hunting fund and and you can get a second job or come up with another source of income or something and if you want to bad enough you can save for the hunt of your dreams and and just don't leave it just don't wait too long yeah well that's good advice so why don't we end it on this Kurt tell me about uh, a couple of the adventures that you have lined up for 2018 that you're excited about well my number one focus right now is to draw Arizona I have uh, two sons uh, 42 and 37 and we've been trying to draw Arizona elk tags and that will be a DIY type of a thing with wall tents and I mean every other hunt will take a backseat to that hunt because they don't get a chance to do these premium type hunts like I do and and so I'm, I'm focused on that. But uh, right now, I, uh, I'm just working on my schedule for right now. And, and we'll be uh, looking at some black bear hunts in the spring. Uh, lake-based black, black bear hunts are always fun because you can fish during the day and hunt bears in the evening. And be going to Kansas turkey hunting again with my grandson. And I might sneak down to Iowa next week for four or five days. Uh, and then I'll be planning uh, September elk hunts and uh, always got to go elk hunting someplace. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've, uh, well, I'm going to head to Illinois on the 5th of January and I'm going to sneak in a late season whitetail hunt right before ATA. And uh, then after that, I may not hunt again until April. Um, but I'm actually going to take. Uh, Emily Kantner uh, our associate editor and a camera guy and uh, so we're going to film for Bowhunter TV we're going to go do a spot and stock turkey hunt in Montana so that ought to be fun because that'll be kind of a non-traditional turkey hunt the terrain is such out there uh, there's so many birds I uh, hunt with uh, J&J guide service out there uh, Rich Snyder and uh, he said it's a lot of fun and it sounded like a hoot I had uh, John Silks and I went out there a couple years ago and did a spot and stock mule deer hunt and he's been wanting us to come out so we're going to go do that turkey hunt and then john and i are actually going to go back next september and do an elk hunt with those guys also for tv so i know i've got at least two television hunts lined up and i'll try to uphold your high standards and uh uh, make the cut (laughs) yeah yeah well it won't be hard to uphold my whitetail standards from this year that's for sure well, I provided at least one good whitetail episode for you then for 2018, and maybe Waring will let me go uh, do another one next year. So try and try and get the job done for you. Kurt, thank you so much for being with me today. Uh, glad you had a good holiday, and uh, let's hope for the very best of success for uh, both of our magazines and both of us as we head into the new year. Yep, same to you, and to all the listeners, uh, have a great new year. 
Thank you for listening to Peterson's Bow Hunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bow hunters. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bow Hunting on your local newsstand or check us out on the web at bowhuntingmag.com.